Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of sexual assault and violence against women. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. If you're concerned for your own or someone else's safety, call 1-800-RESPECT. If you're in Australia and it's an emergency, dial triple zero. Please listen with care. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, a former high-ranking detective in the New South Wales Police, whose tenacity and skill saw him take on not only criminals, but the force itself. And I thought, well, okay, if you can't throw a team at it, at least give it to me. I can do it. I don't need everybody else. Short of the lockup, I can do everything else myself. Anthony Macklin is a former detective inspector in the New South Wales Police Force. He's been out of the force for a few years now, for reasons we'll get into. But before he left, he was one of the force's most tenacious and best-performing detectives. The cases we'll talk about are each unique, and in their own ways, telling of the time in which Anthony was a detective. One is especially difficult to hear, and difficult for Anthony to take us through. But you can hear in his voice how much it means to him to tell that story. That should have been picked up. If we had gone on day one, we would have found that. That's a case we'll get into. But before we do, we'll get to know Anthony a little more and understand why a difficult situation at home led him to the police and moulded him into the officer he became. Let's take it back right to the early days. Anthony, I'm always interested in having a chat about, you know, the, the motivation to join the police. We were chatting off air and you mentioned that a motivating factor for you is there's domestic violence within your childhood home, mm, Anthony. Mm. What is it about that growing up in that environment, if, if you're comfortable talking about that? Look, let me, let me say, first of all, the offender in my instance was not male. Um, and that's often the thing that people believe is if it's DV, it has to be a male offender and it wasn't. I think the thing that people don't understand about DV is that lived experience of it's 24-7. When that person goes out, there's a sense of relief. And when they're coming home or when you think they're coming home, there's that dread and you're walking on eggshells egg and you're waiting for something to happen. And you, you know, the thing about it is you understand the injustice, but the skills it gave me as a police officer were amazing. I was negotiating from age 10. You know, I was trying to bring her down from being super angry and when work them around, I was looking at the body language to see what was coming next. And that's the thing that I felt helped me as I became a detective, as I joined the police, but also gave me that sense of, I didn't want other people to have to live through that. And when you feel like you're being oppressed, when you feel like someone's got the ultimate power over you and there's no one to turn to, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. Anthony, 
let's we 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 like um talking about specific cases and you know in an 18 year career there's there would be a plethora of stories and cases that you could share with us you're i think you're connected to the state crime command and the sex crimes unit yep. am i using that right sort of terminology around that yeah yeah so it's the uh, state crime command child protection and sex crime squad you're in a unit that can then be deployed to assist more local commands yes. is that is that that's, That's how right. that yeah. works. You cover the. You are the authority on investigating uh, sexual offences and child protection matters across the state. There's a case that you're involved with, which um, I won't use the language you use. I, I'm just going to say it still gets under your skin. Let's mm. let's let it sit like that. Um, <laughs> it's a case where I think you said in hindsight you could have or should have gone harder or mm. whatever the case may be. Um, it's a serial uh, sex case, a sexual assault, serial rape case. Here in uh, in New South Wales, can you can you walk us through your involvement with that one, Anthony? I transferred in the into the State Crime Command Child Protection and Sex Crime Squad in two thousand eight. Um, it's the type of squad where you have to be a designated detective to to go to that squad. A lot of the sergeants are ex homicide. There's some really good people in that team, and people I learned a lot from, to be sure. And I went there because I don't think there's much better work than chasing after pedophiles and sex offenders and serial sex offenders at that. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, there's all police work is good, but that's the one that speaks to me. And I spent a lot of time doing on-call. And as the on-call team, you New South Wales police have in their computer system this thing called significant events. So anything that's like a strictly indictable offence or a whatnot um, gets tagged and you can log on and read those different reports. And your job as the part of the on-call team and just part of professional um, knowledge is to basically check every sexual assault that comes through. Every day you'd read every sexual assault offence and you start to get an understanding. And, and look, Brent, you've worked in uh, sex crimes. You know what it's like. You, It's almost formulaic. You can read the narrative in the events and understand where it's going. And one day I'm looking at this particular event and it happened in my previous command. So I know the investigator. And it's got a particular uh, modus operandi, which is, I've never seen before. The thousands of cases and instances of sexual assault I've seen, I've never seen before. So, Anthony, modus operandi, when we're, when we're talking about that, we're talking about the method of operation by the offender. And in this particular case, it was very specific, very unique, almost jumped off the page at you. Absolutely. And look, the reason I don't say what it is, is because... I don't want to have any kind of copycat events. I don't want to give anybody else ideas. We know that those things that sometimes get published, uh, people say, hey, that's a great idea. That's a way for me to offend, you know. Mm. Um, I can be a unique offender like they were or get my name in the papers. It, it's very bizarre. Mm. But that's one of those things that that's why I don't want to mention it. No, it's fine. So I speak to this investigator. Like I said, I know her. She's a good investigator. And she said, look, I was going to ring you. I know you're at sex crimes. This one, I'm like, yeah, just run me through it. This is so unique. I reckon I can get this across the line. I reckon we can get a team out there. That was a stupid thing for me to say. Because I've offered help thinking that, of course, we're going to go help because we're sex crimes. So I take this up to the inspector. The inspector's standing next to the, next to the superintendent that runs the squad. And I say, boss, look, here's this. Um, it's very unique very strange. I think this is something we really should go out to. Um, fits within our charter. We could go out for a day, you know, two days, whatever. 
And he says, no, I read that one. That's the one where she came from the pub. I'm like, no, she'd been to friend's place and she's, you know, in a, in a park. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's just someone that knows it. Don't worry. We're not going out to that one. I'm like, I'm kind of taken aback. I'm like, you, you don't even know the details of the offense I'm talking about. And you're telling me I can't go. I'm, I'm going insane here. So you, your hands were tied. You, you're basically told, nope, you're not going to have any involvement. And the offender reoffends. Yeah, offender reoffends. The next one comes in. It's a Friday, uh, Thursday night into a Friday morning, and I see it. I'm on call again, and this young woman has been attacked on a golf course. And I speak to the investigations manager, the head of the detectives out there um, at this location. Um, it jumps off the page at me, like you said again. I'm like, this time they've got to let me out. So I go back to them. I say, look, here's this one. It is so close to the other one. It's almost exactly the same. Let's go. By that stage, they're like, oh, they hum and har about it. And then it's, we start shift at like 7 a.m. there. It's 12, 12 midday. They're like, oh, yeah, you can go out there and uh, just help them for the rest of the day. So, you know, five hours. Help them with a canvas. A canvas being a door knock. Door knock, yeah, yeah. And I don't love doing a canvas, but anybody that's been in the D's knows you get some great evidence from that. So I'll do it. I don't care. I just want to get after it. But it's, it's not a great use of resource, I would suggest, from the uh, state command to send a qualified detectives to go and knock on doors, which is probably in a case like this, you'd be getting young uniformed constables almost to be filling that yeah, role. Yeah, And. The thing is, I grabbed one of the other good guys um, out of the office. He was on call with me and, you know, we head out. We found in that canvas the guy that saw the offender. And he says, this was last night about this time? I'm like, yeah. He said, I saw that guy. I'm like, what makes you say it's that guy? He said, well, I saw a young girl go past and I was putting my bins out. And he lives opposite a golf course. And he says, I saw this guy on the other side of the street. Not many people walk down there. And he said, I'm... Like he's kind of stalking behind the cars. It was really weird. And he said, I, you know, I just did that thing. I walked back inside. I closed the door. I didn't think about it. And he said, and I meditated on it for a couple of minutes. I grabbed my cricket bat and I ran back out there looking for him because I just knew he was up to no good. And, you know, at that time they'd actually traveled deep inside the the golf course and she was being um, offended against. And that's a, like, there's a guy that's so keen to help so close yet so far away. And, and you spoke to him. I spoke to him. And then after you did that half a shift there, you were told that's it, no yeah, more involvement. No more involvement. So after that, I'm pretty riled. But again, you know, it's a it's a command organization. Orders flow from the top, you follow orders. Anyway, I think I went on leave. I came back um, and I was going through the offenses that had occurred because I'm I'm looking for this again, and this time I find an offence on the North Shore where a woman was seemingly followed off the bus, um, walks into a block of townhouses, into the courtyard of the townhouses, to her home, and gets um, attacked practically metres from her front door. She's sexually assaulted. Sexually assaulted. Mm. The exact same methodology is there. Okay, it's it's on the north side, but it's still a still close to waterfront. Um, Similar age, female, um, similar MO, um, you know, I'm dying. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm livid. 
And again, I'm like, can we go out? Can we do something about this? No, 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 you can't. Time's gone. Okay. I go home and on my day off, I'm, I put together a spreadsheet and I pick out 21 different indicators or points that show a progression in the offending or the exact same methodology or signature or something else. Just on that, the knowledge that you have and, and your knowledge of these three cases now, three mm-hmm. now, you've sat down and identified 21 individual, it's a combination of profile um, signatures of crime scene, methods of operation, which would all point towards similar fact evidence yeah. in all three of these cases. There's enough there to not just arrest, but pretty much get a conviction. Yeah, I thought so. So this is offence number three, mm. but it continues. That's right. And look, at number two, it's a serial. At number three, it's definitely a serial. It's well within our charter. We should be doing this. And these are just just on this too, I don't mean to interrupt there. These are rare offences. Serial sex crimes, although they get a lot of coverage through you know Netflix and Stan and, and what have you, these are rare forms of crime. Yeah. Uh, and so when they occur, and someone like yourself with the knowledge that you carried into it, the frustration that you must have been feeling as this is sort of unfolding in front of you, but you're sort of handcuffed, if you will, yeah. to the desk and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. I create this spreadsheet and I'm like, you know, this this is it. And I walk in the inspector's office, again, really good inspector, really knowledgeable detective um, and just all around good guy who I really respected. And I'm like, boss, have a look at this. These are the offences. This is how it looks when you put it all together. Let's go. I'll, like, put a team on this. Again, I got knocked back. I said, okay, you don't want to put a team on it. Just give me a computer. Give me a car. Let me go at it. Yeah, he's a, he's a good bloke. He's a good investigator. He's a guy that you've got a great relationship with. Stepping back from it, what was the rationale? What Something that was so clear to you, and I, and I can see the frustration you telling the story. Why was it so unclear for the for the for the hierarchy? Look, I, I don't know. And having been an inspector myself, I know there are some things that you can't tell the people beneath you, but you can make an inference for them to understand. I I didn't get any of that. All the teams had jobs assigned to them, but single jobs. And this was not going away. This was going to continue. And I thought, well, okay, if you can't throw a team at it. At least give it to me. I can do it. Mm. I don't need everybody else. Mm. Short of the lockup, I can do everything else myself. So you, you've made that offer? Yeah. Yep. And he says to me, oh, that's right, mate, just give it to Intel and uh, you can work on it from your desk. Now, you know what that means. Mm. I can't do anything. Mm. Re- really, what am I? Sending a couple of emails. Yeah, that's right. A couple of emails, a couple of phone calls. That that doesn't get me anywhere. Um, that doesn't stop the next offence happening. And there's no like an allocation of time. You don't have to do strike force work. You can just do do that. Or you can do, you know, 50-50. So I've still got to do everything else and these are going and I can't get through what you need to as an investigator. And so he says, give it to Intel. So I give these markings and indicators to... Just explain what that is, giving it to Intel? Yeah. So every squad has their own intelligence officers involved and they're there to look for kind of what I found, like... Uh, they would do things like collect phone data and gather intelligence about offenders and modus operandi and similar offences and things. So really they should have picked up on this already and they hadn't. Um, but they also help investigators with kind of correlating information and making things clearer. And 
I give it to the intelligence sergeant who I knew, um, not very well, but, you know, sworn police officer. Some of those positions are unsworn. He comes back to me after a week and he says, oh, mate, there's nothing here. I, I had to look through. I don't even think all the offense, offenses are linked. Honestly, I think you're barking up the wrong tree. And I won't say what I thought. Um, it's like every avenue I turn, I, I'm like, surely this guy's going to see it. Surely he's going to find something. We're going to identify something and this will get some action. This will get traction. We'll go from there. So this is after the third attack by what we now know to be the same offender. What ends up happening? How many more, how many repeat offences do we get before this guy's apprehended? So I'm on call again on the weekend. I get a phone call from uh, my sergeant and he says, look, yeah, come in. We've got a job. Three attempted offences occurred overnight, different locations, but one back near the second location, the other two closer towards the inner west. They think it might be the same person. There was a change in the, the methodology but he was also unsuccessful, where he'd been successful in all the other ones. And change of methodology is is unusual in in serial offenders, mm. but not unheard of yes. if they're changing because they may have been caught or something's changed in the series. So they change how they do it, which of course can create the illusion that, oh, well, these are not connected. It sounds to me, as we're hearing this roll out, that you had a, a real um, thirst for knowledge in this area of, of profiling and um, going back to Mindhunter and, and criminal profiling and the behavioural analysis unit and things such as that. 2011, it's striking me that the knowledge that you carried into, into these discussions, these situations, was well ahead of perhaps some of your cohorts at the time. There's always been a little bit of pushback, hasn't there, um, from from the department, from police about this being a little bit some newfangled sort of psychological, you know, carry on. Is that what you were coming up against? Were you coming up against sort of you trying to say, hey, look, you're not seeing the woods for the trees here, but they were trying to deploy older style of policing? What's going on there? Look, I think, I think you're in part, you're quite right. I mean, yeah. I was talking about terms like MO and signature, and every cop knows what MO is. Ask any cop what a signature is, they don't know what well, that and, is. And signature for the listeners is a term used by behaviour analysis unit with regards to serial sex offenders. Mm. They, they leave a signature at each scene. It's it's something which is important to the offender, but not necessary for the commission of a crime per se, but it's something that they feel that they need to do. And you're seeing that coming up. Yes. But you're using terminology that some of your colleagues are going, oh, that's just gobbly, that's rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Macklin's just on a rant. He's an idiot. He's got no idea. And if, if it was there to be seen, well, everybody would have seen it. Sure. You know. And so where do we go? Where do we go now? So I don't end up on the, on the strike force. And so from there on, I have a fairly limited understanding of, because it's offsite. I don't get given much access to it, but they got a, like a profile picture of the guy, like an idea of what he looked like. I think they put it out to the media. Someone suggested any, like this often happens, they suggest a number of people and one guy kind of fits mm. that bill. Um, they got a DNA profile and they matched that to the offence or, mm. you know, all the offences that we had. And the thing about it was we know that DNA came back, that confirmed that the first offence that I nominated was the first one he gets found for. There's no nothing before that that's connected by DNA or anything else. Yes. And he's connected by the DNA to the other offences that I identified. So that's number one. Number two is he gets charged, he gets convicted. After he gets locked up, 
say he gets locked up on the Thursday, on the Friday, after they've been to a bail hearing, you get charged, you get locked up the very next day. If you get bail refused, you get put before the bail courts. The team decides, in their wisdom, the investigation team, to go out to the location where the first sexual assault happened, something I probably would have thought you'd do in the first week. There is the original weapon from that offence that has been pushed into the soft earth. It was like a box cutter or something, and he's pushed it into the dirt, um, and it's been exposed when they've done the grass cutting and things. Now, if you've got a serial sex offender, you go back. You don't just canvas the neighbours. You do a line search. Your, your forensics are looking for that. That should have been picked up. If we had gone on day one, we would have found that. How many offences did this guy end up committing? He got convicted for a total of 18 offences. Some of them were on you know, the same individual, but it was at least, uh, I believe, six to eight. Six to eight separate attacks totaling about 18 offences? Yes. And is it, um, is it getting ahead of, of ourselves to say, Anthony, that um, had you been able to follow the hunches that you had, you would have had enough to arrest, lock up, and probably convict after the first offence? I reckon give me the first... Or the, the second one, I think I would if have If not had the him. first, yeah, yeah. you'd have had him in the second. A guy that ends up committing 18 offences yep. against six young yep. women. Yep. You made mention earlier, you went on to take on the rank of uh, of, of inspector, mm-hmm. detective inspector mm-hmm. in, the, in the New South Wales Police. I'm sure you carried with you into that rank some of the frustrations uh, of, a, of a young, forward-thinking, smart, intelligent investigator that sort of hit a brick wall. Uh, you must have carried some of that into your role as an inspector to try and ensure that those beneath you didn't experience the same frustration. Yeah, look, I'd, I don't know. You probably have to talk to the guys that worked for me, but I always tried to do my best to help educate them and give them that knowledge. I remember sitting in the detectives course asking myself, why was I not taught this stuff in the academy? Mm. You know, I, I could have done so much better had I have known some of that stuff. And some of it seems relatively basic. Mm. Um, look, as, as an inspector, as a sergeant, your job is to look after the team, but you've got a responsibility to the community and the community are only as safe as the experience and the knowledge of the team that's mm. around them and their motivations and their qualities. And everybody's mm. got different qualities, but you want them to be kind of like a dad. You want them to be better than you. And the benefit was we were talking about before was, you know, when you're in the presence of some of New South Wales police have some like some brilliant detectives. When you get to work with them and you're a young guy coming through and you see how they operate, that's amazing. Mm. You just sit there like a sponge and try to absorb what you can. In 2004, this is a, a robbery at a hotel in Sydney, $50,000 taken from the hotel safe. Walk us through that case. Yeah, look, I think the so, there's a couple of points to this that people should know, and that is, first of all, when you go into a detective's office, you don't just start out as, hey, you're a detective. You're earning your wings, so to speak. You've got to prove to them that you've got the skills They've got to decide whether they like you and then they put you forward for what we call in New South Wales a boring, like a panel interview where it's, you've got to get through. So I'm in that space where we call that A-list and I'm trying to prove myself to the rest of the team. 
And because I'm either nerdy, diligent, call it what you will, I turn up at 6am, my rostered shift is 7, and they say, oh, look, we've had a robbery overnight down at this hotel, didn't want to call out the on-call Ds, can you go down? So I go down and I have a look at this thing, and armed robberies were huge back then. There was multiple armed robberies every night, but this one was a big one, and it just struck me as being something different. So when I go in and have a look at the scene, it's straight away I'm like, there's something not right here. There's a lot of pre-planning and probably some inside info. There's like a massive set of keys that he's found, but he picks the right key and the right door. There's like three doors that all look the same back of house and he knows exactly what to do and exactly how to get in the safe. So from there, we start talking to the, the manager and you would have experienced this, I'm sure, in your policing career. In mine, you find these people, these witnesses or victims, they're like, oh, I think I know who did it. And your automatic reaction is almost like, okay, whatever. Hit me with it. I doubt it. And the manager raises a name to me and he says, I think this guy did it. I'm like, okay, why do you think? And he says to me, well, look, he knew exactly where to go. I'm like, okay, that's a good point. He recently left us, got sacked. His girlfriend was working the night before. She still works there. One of the other guys who was on was close friends with him and he hates me. And honestly, I think I recognize his voice. So I think I'm on. This is an armed robbery. Mm-hmm. And the guys coming in are obviously balaclaved up or something such Balaclavas, as Balaclavas, gloves, guns. Whole nine yards. And you're talking to the guy that was, I'd imagine, held at gunpoint. And yes. Give us the yep. keys. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he says he's, you know, he thinks it's his voice. But of course, he's a little bit wavering. He's not 100% sure, but he's like, I'm 90% sure. So we start digging into it and look, I go down, I process the crime scene, I take the statement, I come back and, you know, it takes a couple of days and I just trying to build a profile on this crook and I go through and I find that he's purchased a motorbike two, three days after this. So I go down to the local motorbike store and I say, do you remember this guy? Because he says, oh yeah, look, he only just came in. He said, it was really weird. I said, what was weird about it? He said. First of all, he paid cash. We're talking 2004, so I think he paid ten or 12000 for a brand new motorbike. He said that's no one walks in here with cash, not a young guy like that buying that bike. He said, secondly, his girlfriend came with him and she was really peeved at him. Like I could just tell the whole time she was angry with him. Now, the thing is, once I started delving into his banking records and his employment history, it was very clear he didn't have the money to be able to do it, do that. So something was going on. So I developed this scenario. I know it's him but I don't know how to get it across the line, like where to next. And one of the senior officers says to me, look, get his statement, get a witness statement from him, you know, because he was employed there. So I get the statement thinking I'm doing everything right. And this guy says he's somewhere completely different to where we can show he was. So I'm pretty certain that things are going well here. I've got him putting himself at a different location. I can prove where he is. All those kind of points are coming together. Um, proceeds of the crime are able to be seen. We do a search warrant, get that, take the bike that he bought, get some similar clothing and things. Not 100% identical, but similar items. We never recover the firearm in the search warrant. And basically, we're moving on and we go into court. And what I'd thought about doing was telephone interceptions and listening device warrants and things like that that you might normally do, but I didn't know how to do them. And by the time anyone had mentioned to me, hey, you could give this a crack and this is how you do it, opportunity had gone. Mm. We were months down the track. And, and you're, a, you're a very junior 
detective mm. at this. It's probably yep. one of the most junior in. in I the, was in that the unit. most junior yeah. in the in that office. Yes. Yeah. So before we brought him in, I a couple of interesting things happened. First of all, we went to speak to his girlfriend, and his girlfriend, as soon as we got there, and we said that she was possibly a suspect, burst into tears, which is, as you would know, very uncommon for someone who's innocent. Second of all, called her lawyer and didn't want to be interviewed. And then probably a few weeks later, I got an email and she'd called up on a Saturday night, unhappy with her boyfriend, said she wanted to dob someone in for an armed robbery that was known to her. I was the officer in charge, but she didn't want to speak to me, obviously because I bounced her. And of course that happens on a Saturday night. I'm not rostered to a Tuesday. No one else gets notified by the time we try to exploit that avenue. No, she's back sober. She's happy with him. They've made up. So opportunity lost. So we lock him up, we get everything, we move forward, go to court. This is my first big case, right? I've made a bit of a reputation in the office for being thorough, tenacious and tracking it down. I get to the court and that's where it all falls down. District court. Yeah. So this is up there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's my first um, major um, robbery kind of brief. Yes. And- Anybody that knows, knows what a voir dire is, kind of like a hearing before the main hearing Mm -hmm. where they're testing evidence. Like a committal hearing. Yeah. Before they bring the jury in, before they do any of that. And they sit me in the box and they say to me, look, was he a suspect at the time you take the statement? And it's one of those things. I could have said he wasn't. Mm. There was no way they could prove that he was. They could make an inference, but they couldn't prove it. But what separates me from them? I have my own dignity and faith and things that I have to abide by and my own level of integrity. So even though I kind of, I know this is going down a bad path, I'm like, yep. He was a suspect. He was a suspect in my mind. And so that means because he was a suspect, the statement had to be thrown out. Mm. The reason for that would be you've interviewed him as a witness, Mm -hmm. but technically in your mind, he's a suspect. That's right. And so the statement, in essence, was provided by him under false pretenses. That's what his defence counsel yes, would say. Yes, he wasn't and given making the, it inadmissible. Hundred percent. He wasn't given the rights and the caution, and knowing he was a suspect when he was making that. So that statement would have been taken without a caution. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. So that that goes, and then the next person they take in is the victim, who then decides, even though he was like, I'm ninety percent sure it was him on the voice ID says, I I don't know if it was him, Mm. and folds, Mm. and case gets thrown out. Case gets thrown out. Yeah. The guy that's mentoring you through that, the the, the senior person that told you to go and interview him, is a, what's going on with that? (laughs) Yeah, the funny thing is, he's a fantastic detective. Right. Um, Still in the job, very well known, but it's one of those things, I just think he had an off day or Mm. didn't, was too pushed at that time, but you know, look, everybody in the office was getting smashed with jobs. Yeah. You know, in that time period, armed robberies were through the roof, ram raids were through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's juggling a whole lot of them and yeah. he's just, yeah, look, go and interview him, get it done. And... That's right. I'm the annoying junior guy yeah. asking stupid questions. Yes. Yeah. But of course in a courtroom where everything slows right down and all 100%. the pointed questions are asked. Am I right in saying too that when the dust settles on something like this, so you're sort of walking back in, tail between the legs, feeling like goodness me, that was my first big one, and I've blown it. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that the, um, the the suspect, let's call him that, nothing more, nothing less, starts driving past your house and tooting the horn and yeah. making himself known to you. I mean, yeah. this is this is an area of policing which 
some of the folks listening in may or may not be aware of. You know, when you're quite confronting as a police officer doing your job and then having those that you're you're dealing with, interviewing, send to prison or whatever, driving past your house and, and, mm. and I think at one point following you and things such yes. as that. Yep. Just, just walk us through that. So as it turned out, I was renting, thankfully, but found a place and it wasn't too far from him. Not the place where we originally had done the search warrant, he'd moved. Mm. And his girlfriend was living on the, he was on sort of one side to me, you know, maybe a kilometre. She was on the other side. And so he'd drive past my house every day. He didn't have to drive past my house, but he did that and he beeped the horn every time. How, how did he know it was your house? I don't know how he knew, how he found that information out, but mm. I realised it was him one day getting out of the car. I'm just parked the car, been in the shops and he drives past. So I don't know if he saw me at that time mm. and he realised I was there mm. and that was my car or if he had that information from somewhere else. Look, this this probably happens more than what a lot of people are aware of. I, I, I got followed home after a late shift by a carload of guys that I'd had dealings with. And, um, and it's, you know, you do your job and you do it to the best of your ability and you get in the car and you go home and it's, it, it doesn't matter who you are, you, you're not prepared for that dealing with it like that. Um, what were the protocols, New South Wales Police at the time? I, I'd imagine you would have informed to somebody that you, you suspected that this was happening, someone was following you. What, what are the protocols there involved in that? Yeah, so there's the protocols and then there's what happened. Right. And the protocol is that a risk assessment is supposed to be made. And here's a guy that now knows where I live, no longer before the courts. He's got a co-offender, which we couldn't prosecute. I knew who that was and mm. they knew who I was. So now I've got two people that potentially know where I am. The, the protocol is a risk assessment is done. They might speak to the offender. They might um, look at setting up surveillance. But at the lower end, you've got, hey, we'll give you a radio. We'll give you extra security measures. At the higher end, you can take your firearm home and, you know, because potentially someone's going to kick your front door in and shoot you or mm. come after you. Mm. If they're doing an armed robbery with a shotgun, it's not a huge step for them to be intimidating police and, you know, shooting up houses and doing things like that. So that's the protocol. However, I went to my boss at the time, the location I was working at, and I explained it to him. And he said, oh, don't worry, mate. Happens. Just don't tell your wife. So you were married at the time? I'm married. You know, we live together. Uh, she's also a cop. And now I'm like, okay, what do I do? How, how do I manage this for our safety? So, of course, he says, don't tell your wife. I'm not going to keep that from my wife because she needs to know what she's dealing with and what that looks like. I started putting my own security measures in place, you know, trying to make sure extra locks and being, you know, doing anti-surveillance techniques on the way home. And um, you become hyper aware mm. at home. I ended up with two guard dogs, like properly trained guard dogs. They were inside the house with us 24-7 because you don't know what's coming. And the effect that that has on you long term, I mean, sleep patterns, this is one thing. I mean, working shifts, mm. sleep patterns all over the show anyway, but goodness me, in, any noise, any any tree brushing against the roof or something, you're, you're bolt upright in bed thinking, okay, here we go. No, 100%. You're, every time you hear a noise, every time the dog barks, you think it's that person. And just walk us forward on that. How, how did that sort of, how did it conclude or did it not? It, was it just something that you just sort of thought, well, this is it, this is what we live with or... The benefit was, as I said, we were renting um, and we were renting, so we were saving a deposit. So when we bought a place, yeah, 
um, you know, we moved out of that area. But one of the times I got followed was while I was driving home to my new location. And it was just the fact that I was hyper aware mm. and I was able to do some anti-surveillance that I lost them mm. um, and they lost me. So that was, that. It's, it's just either a little bit of luck or I don't, I don't know what you call it, but I think honestly they gave up. But, mm. you know, to this day, I know that guy's still getting around, still involved in badness mm. now and then. Mm. I don't think he's ever been caught. And it never leaves you that. No. It never leaves you. You know, you, you, you're walking through a car park, you, you, you know, you're looking over your shoulder and it's just, you just get, it's like a toothache. You just get used to feeling mm. like that and that's how it is. And, and, and I think, um, and I say again, there would be no shortage of, um, of, of police both serving and, and, and past police that, that have had these experiences. And, uh, and it's something that probably isn't spoken about too much. Mm. It's something that you don't hear about. It's, um, so just really appreciate your, your honesty on that because that is, um, yeah, that is something that is, uh, it's, it's no good. Mm. 2019 was uh, the year that you decided to step away from the, from the police. Could I ask what, what was the, what was the pathway for you to, you know, leaving the police? What were the triggers or the, the, the what were the main reasons behind that? You know, you're, you're a, a detective inspector. It's a, it's a, it's a good rank at that point. You'd probably been in that rank for a little while. Things are clocking along, 18 years service. What made you leave? Look, there's two things. Um, first of all, I'd been a company man. I loved doing that job. I liked the people I worked with. I liked being able to help people. Like as far as I'm concerned, the cops is one of the best jobs you'll ever do um, if you've got the right ethos and ethics. But there's, there's a saying, uh, you're not a proper detective until you've had your first divorce. I was going through a divorce and I have a child with special needs and all of a sudden I'm working days and I'm working nights and anybody that's got kids knows that consistency routine is important. So I went to my commander and I said, look, I really need, and, and it's not uncommon, there's a flexible work arrangement policy, there's all those kind of things um, and I wasn't asking for anything special, just put me on set roster so I know that when I've got four days off that I have the kids and they go back to their mum because, like I said, my ex-wife was a cop at the time. So, you know, the child arrangements work out and the kids have consistency. Now, the other side and the other reason why I left the police is the politics. I'm not political. I don't care about who you're aligned with. I want to come to work, do my job, go home. Before I took my promotion to inspector, I worked, or at least this is my belief, I worked for a superintendent who then became the AC of the region, assistant commissioner. The person I went and got my inspector's position under was also one of that person's key competitors and was trying to win that job as well. And I'm pretty sure that superintendent thought I was a plant um, and on the political team of the other side. So from day one, I felt like I was on the, on the outer. And then everybody said to me, look, what's going on? Like, you shouldn't have this portfolio. You don't get that. You're being given all this stuff that's kind of strange. Um, and I could tell the writing was on the wall with that individual. But, you know, like any bad boss, you kind of ride them out. But then when it came to my family and I couldn't get the days off that I needed and things organized, nothing would work, something had to give. And about the same time, I was liaison with a university and I, you know, started talking to their head of security and they were talking about, oh, we have this consultant, we do this, we do this. And, you know, started to get an 
idea of what was going on in the outside world. I'm like, you know what? Why am I busting my hump for an organization that doesn't care? So I started making plans to leave. I even actually had the assistant commissioner, you know, come up to me and say, look, I'll give you a transfer anywhere in the region. I know that person doesn't like you. I know it's got to do with me. It's not your fault. I'll move you. But by that stage, I still couldn't, you know, it was still going to be a matter of managing the days off, things like that. Mm. I was still going to have to go on the team, get that covered off and it just wasn't going to work. There was no way I could make it work and family has to come first. So you stepped away. I stepped away, yeah. And always these decisions, you, you never know quite at the time, do you, if it's right or wrong. There's always these two voices inside your head, but the proof's in the pudding. Looking back, best decision you've made at the time? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You don't realise how hard policing is until you walk away from it. Yeah. Get a couple of nights good sleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're a new man. And, and you're working now in, 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 a, in the private sector, uh, private investigations and things such as that? Private investigations, security risk management, uh, threat management. So we do a lot of work with uh, stalkers and things like that, still working to try to mitigate the risks of that. And the great thing about that, of course, is is those, those 18 years of experience and all the stuff that we've spoken about here today, you're now able to channel into mm. this business that you run without all perhaps the politics and, and malarkey going on up above you. Every police officer's dream. Yep. Look, we, we only, I only pretty much hire ex-detectives and guys we know are good. Yes. Uh, we, you know, I get to work with a great bunch of people and yeah, we put into action and we still help people. And that's what I love about our job. Fantastic. Anthony, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet with you and, and I want to thank you for, uh, for, for taking you know, the time out of your busy, busy schedule. You know, you run a business, there's a lot going on. Thanks for dropping in for a chat and, and thank you also for, for, for your honesty uh, and, and for providing the listeners with, a, with, a, with a, such an insight, such an honest insight into, uh, into your time, New South Wales Police. And um, thank, you, thank you just so very much for your service. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for all those that listened and got to the end. But uh, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.